This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen. I'm Leslie Hankson. And I'm Sarah Patterson. Today, our guest is Mary Beth Stout from the University of Northern Iowa. Mary Beth recently published Girls Just Want to Have Fun Too, Complicating the Study of Femininity and Women's Leisure in Sociology Compass. Today, a masculine cure for toxic masculinity? Our discussion was recorded on November 12th, 2019. So this is not from a sociology journal, <laughs> but I was reading the most uh, recent issue of Harper's, as I am wont to do. And, you know, there was a, what I thought was actually a very well done article by Barrett Swanson. And the title is Men at Work. Is there a masculine cure for toxic masculinity? And there are so many reasons why I love this article. He's not a sociologist, but, you know, he's going at it. It's kind of like, I mean, he's a journalist, but this is sort of like participant observation, you know, as part of his being able to have access to this retreat by this company called Everyman, right, which is, you know, one of the newest and I would say probably hottest, like, you know, these men's groups that have emerged, you know, as part of dealing with, you know, the hashtag Me Too movement. So he has to pay his faves hundreds of dollars, but he also has to take part in these activities, which are horrifying to me, <laughs> right? It just has a... Like what? Like what? There's this one, like, towards the end where they go out into the woods and everyone just has to, like, scream and yell <sighs> and lash out at Mother Earth. Right. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a cure for toxic masculinity to me. I was wondering if there was any research base behind any of the activities. <laughs> well, apparently they're like they are said to be research based. Not he doesn't um, point to the research that they say these activities are, you know, are coming out of for all of them, but for some. And there's this one activity that they do where that involves breathing. And they claim that it comes from, you know, this old yogic, you know, sort of tradition when really it's like, no, this is what they did back in the day when they were experimenting on people uh, on LSD, <laughs> right? And yeah, I mean, so all of that is interesting in and of itself, but he raises, I think, a lot of great questions, right? So the first one being, well, what is this that these organizations or these companies are actually doing, right? So they seem to be attacking toxic masculinity from this very micro level, individual focused, sometimes changing behavior, sometimes, you know, changing the way that you view the world and yourself without ever, number one, dealing with, well, what are the more sort of structural reasons why you act and feel the way that you do, right? Number one. And also number two, there are two other things. The second is, you know, many of these exercises actually encourage these men to bring up traumas from their past, generally childhood traumas, without actually then addressing it. So it's like kind of like victim porn in some way. And the third mm -hmm. is, you know, his claim, which I thought was, you know, well taken is that, you know, this has become just yet another arm of the wellness movement, right? We can all make ourselves better by ourselves, right? Just find the right company, pay the right money, 
and make this commitment. And it doesn't matter what goes on around you in your world, right? It's about you trying to fix yourself. And those I thought were all just really, really spot on. And and trying to think about, you know, if there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, number one, and number two, we are actually trying to address it. Why is this the way that we're doing it, especially without the participation of any women? Leslie? Yes. When I read the article, it I really read it as like a, a corporate retreat where somebody was pulling together a couple trends like, you know, therapy culture, yoga culture, and masculinity culture. It was sort of just bunched together in sort of a commercial package that people could go into for whatever reason. What 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 made you think that it was like what were what were the exciting prospects of of this blend for you? But that's exactly what Swanson is saying here, right? He's like it's just a bunch of tropes thrown together with some really hot trending activities, right? That are mm-hmm. all mashed together and packaged really well and everything's really slick, right? Mm-hmm. But then if you actually stand back and actually look and listen to what's going on here, you have to ask yourself, what the hell is this? And who is this good for, except for the bottom line for these companies? You know, it reminded me a lot. Just hear me out on this. It reminded me a lot of Poshmark. <laughs> what's, what's that? What's that? So Poshmark is, it's a place where you can sell high-end goods that you own and no longer want to own. Uh-huh. And the commercials for Poshmark are, I was able to, I made $10,000 on Poshmark. And what's missing is the larger prequel, how much money did you spend on those goods originally? Exactly. (laughs) This reminded me a lot of Poshmark. Hmm. Nothing against Poshmark, but you know. It reminded me of like, what's the, of, of Goop. That's what it reminded yes. me of. Yes. Except yes. that I was What's like, Goop? yeah, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's like kind of wellness uh, empire. And I was like, <laughs> just waiting for the, you know, whatever for the, the SNL impression, right? Yeah. So, or, yeah. Or, or for the egg that you're meant to insert, right? Except, you know, it would have to go somewhere else for men than it yeah. does for women. But, um, but yeah, that's what it totally reminded me of. I think the author you know, he brings up a few times that these problems are systemic instead of individual. And I think you see that in what the men in the article are talking about. They're Mm -hmm. talking about being discriminated against because they're gay. They're being, they're talking about marital troubles. They're talking about issues at work. And it's like, this dude is not going to solve this, Mm -hmm. you know, on a weekend retreat away from himself. I mean, any of the sort of, um, you know, the yoga or the Buddhism or that, you know, those kind of retreats, like the one thing they tell you is like, you don't solve that one time sitting on the mat or one retreat away. And I think you're exactly right that they're sort of selling them this, like you go away in the woods for a week and then everything will be solved um, instead of talking about the systemic issues. Yeah. And the other thing that I, you know, that I wondered about, you know, researcher that I am, right. It's like you start thinking about, well, you know, what about bias here, right? Mm-hmm. Who actually, so number one, you have to have the money. Number two, you have to know that this exists. And number three, you need to think that it's a good idea for you, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, number one, I'm sure that there are tons of men out there who are like, um, I actually don't really need this. I can just sit down and talk to my sister or my mom, right? Or my best friend and work through some stuff. 
and you know, so, so that's number one. Number two, they're the men who don't think there's a problem at all, right? And number three is, you know, just getting back to it again, like who are we missing, right? Who is not present like in this space here? And that to me is, I think one of the most interesting things about this article is like this not having this conversation about who selects into a retreat like this. I don't know about this one, Leslie. This strikes me as something, uh, not to do all stereotypes, but like some, you know, group of Brooklynites with like 50 <laughs> grand to burn going up, you know, to just sort of get a meld of all of their, you know, all of, all of their choice cultural products of the moment, like yoga and wokeness. And like, you know, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I would be surprised if there was like an aioli type of, you know, sandwich involved in this. And <laughs> Well, I kind of feel like that. I mean, that's what he's saying. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's his critique of this whole thing. Right. Mm. And he's saying that that is problematic. Right. If this is the best that we can do. <laughs> right. To think about, you know, getting men to start thinking about what masculinity means. Right. And why it is they have the interpretation of masculinity that they have. And also at the same time, this isn't in conversation with women. Right. He's saying this is we're screwed <laughs> i don't know i i see that that these types of sort of retreats is not really taking any type of social problem seriously if you want to if you want my personal opinion of it like uh, you know there's no there's no questioning of any any problems that are going on these are a bunch of like exercises where people emote in the forest and, and you know even even like some of what i read i i don't know it was like there's like so many, like even like general views on toxic masculinity or when I hear these think pieces, you know, I just, I have a lot of problems with them in the sense <laughs> that there's a lot of blending masculinity with toxicity. There's a lot of, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Dad culture is a masculine culture. It's a pro-social culture, right? Not all in instances of masculinity are antisocial. There are uh, innocuous masculine cultures, like when this person derides somebody playing wizard video games at night. You know, that, I mean, that's maybe some fact. I don't know if that's really gamer culture, mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. something that we associate with men that I don't think is anti or pro-social in any sense. It's just, you know, some people don't like it. Some people might find it aesthetically repulsive. Just like a, a guy with his hat on backwards yelling bro in and of itself, <laughs> it's innocuous, right? If if they're not doing harm to anyone, but some people find that repulsive, like that type of culture repulsive on some aesthetic level. And then there are definitely antisocial masculine cultures. So it's like part of the problem that I have with toxic masculinity is you can't like, it's very hard when you hear about the toxicity. It, it's not like essentially masculine. It's just toxic. Donald Trump has plenty of female supporters. He couldn't be in office without female supporters who are just as toxic as him. And then there's masculine culture, which is, you know, has its positive and negative facets. So I don't know. Yeah, well, Joe, I mean, I don't know. Just because women support you doesn't mean they're not supporting toxic masculinity. Like, there are plenty of women out there, right, who are champions of it. So mm -hmm. um, when I think about toxic masculinity, I mean, masculinity is one thing, right? Toxic masculinity is, like, ratcheting that crap up to, like, the nth degree, right? So that, you know, number one, like you know, you ha always have to be the alpha, right? You have to be the alpha. There's often the possibility of violence, right? Whether it's symbolic or physical, right? You know, and, and also, and not just in terms of the way in which 
other people view you, but also the things that you aren't willing to do for yourself, right? You, you aren't willing to cry. You aren't willing, you know, to go watch, you know, a rom-com, even if that's what you really want, right? I mean, all of the things that, all of the sort of that, like limitations that you put on yourself because you think it goes against this idea of masculinity that you're trying to uphold and that you think others think that you need to uphold as well. Mary Beth, rescue us. You're the gender <laughs> scholar. Yeah. So yeah. I think that we need to think about hegemon the hegemonic nature of toxic masculinity. So um, thinking about when the dangerous parts of masculinity become hegemonic, mm-hmm. we can also have I think you're right. We also have toxic femininity and we we have instances we have to really think about this structurally because men support other men in a hegemonic fashion, making sure that that how power is defined works because other men are supporting that other women support um, women support masculinity working, too. So women are invested just as invested as men are in making sure that this stuff works. And so the Me Too culture is really trying to call it and say, wait a minute, here are men that have benefited in great ways. And here's the harm that they've done to people as well as themselves. Here's the harm that other men are and boys are getting into because they see this as as the best way, not a way of being a man, but the best way of being a man. And that really masculinity in a hegemonic fashion is really isolating and confining uh, and really limits options for boys and men. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, I don't think he has a thing against people playing video games, right? He's interpreting sort of the video game playing habits of his roommate as just a total sign of his loneliness and his Mm -hmm. isolation, right? And and that's it. I don't think he's saying there's anything wrong with men who play video games. Because actually he could be, his his neighbor could be interacting with people all over the globe. We, mm-hmm. we sort of have a monolithic way of understanding what we think we see with communication um, rather than understanding, you know, so when I see one of my students on their phone in my class, right, that's, we're all like, rah, 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 we're professors, <laughs> rah, rah, rah. And so they might be having a really important and necessary conversation with a family member. And I, I hope that I've provided a place where they can feel free to do that and let me know when they need help and that kind of thing. But when I walk in and see that, I'm like, Rah. and so that's just what we do. So if we think past a little bit of his interpretation, I think he offers a couple of other really good examples of structural pathways through some of the loneliness and sadness that he is seeing in, in at the camp. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the way that he talks about some of the veterans that are in the camp and that, you know, their prevalence and their work as veterans for the country, the country's also responsible for that. So thinking past some of that, I think is, I thought that was a really poignant part of the article. And I thought he made some really good points. He's clearly reaching out for some some structural help. So I thought I always like to see that, um, the openness to structure in articles that are written by people who are not sociologists. Uh-huh. This actually reminded me a lot of like, because he sort of talks about how they're focusing on the individual versus the structural. Um, I couldn't find it. I really looked for it. But there was this article like, gosh, probably like 10 years ago. And it was talking about how it's hard for people 
to think about structural changes. And the example was this dog. I think there was like a shipwreck. I really wish I could have found this article for you, but like there was a dog that got shipwrecked on an island and people just poured in all this money to save this dog. But like people don't pour in money necessarily to shelters or other um, sort of structural issues, you know, spay and neuter clinics, things like that. Mm -hmm. And the article was just discussing that like, I don't know if it's our tiny monkey brains or what, like just can't handle, you know, it's very difficult for us to envision what structural changes talk or look like. And I think that that's what he does a really nice job of in this article is like screaming in the woods might feel good for now, but that doesn't change the workplace or, you know, masculinity as a, in the culture or things like that. So, Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's less about how we're wired for him and more about, well, this is, how our society is structured, right? I mean, and so you're not meant to be thinking about structural change, right? This is America, right? We're not we're not here to talk about structural change. We're here to talk about you being responsible for yourself, yeah. right? Number 1, and number 2, you can pay to change yourself, right? Yeah. Money is always at the heart and like the glossier and the slicker and the more in demand the 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 program right the better it's going to be for you and if you're not feeling it while you're there in the middle of the woods screaming then there's probably something wrong with you not mm-hmm. not something that's wrong with the program what do you think about this whole thing about stoicism being a negative trait or something <laughs> like that you know like how many times have you been in a position where you had to talk to a worker who outranked you and earned more than you and you're like you're sitting there and you're thinking well there's a lot of emotion work i, I just do my job like uh <laughs> you know there's a lot of a lot of you know sometimes there's something to be said for a little bit of stoicism uh you know when faced with the task and like you know just get the job done well, I mean, so I think there's a difference between stoicism in the workplace, right? You know, if we're just trying to get a task done, like, you know, why do we have to have feelings about this, mm-hmm. right? You know, as long as I'm not hurting your feelings, right, or or what have you, or being dismissive, sure, we don't have to be best buddies, right? He's not just talking about it in the workplace, right? When he says the title men at work, it's not in at work, it's like working on themselves, right? Because so much of what's going on here are problems in their personal lives, right? Mm -hmm. And problems that they have connecting with themselves. So stoicism may have a place in the workplace, right? In order to try and keep things all professional, but you know what I mean? It probably isn't the best way to be with your six-year-old, right? So... Well, stoicism also has a gendered component to it. And if we think about it and broaden it to an intersectional framework, uh, it depends on what you're, what I call my human container, right? Mm-hmm. So our container is viewed by other people and how they choose to view it. And the portions of my intersectional human container, I have control over how I communicate, but I don't have control over, right, Scotland. So being stoic in the workplace works mostly for men. Yes, when I, as a white woman, go into the workplace and appear to be stoic, I get called things that rhyme with witch mm-hmm. so regularly. And I think that that is amplified if you if you play around with that intersectionality a little bit more. And so I think it's really important for us to understand how does it matter if you're a person of color? How does it matter if you are gay? How does it matter if you're trans? How do all of these things matter? And it could be the same stoic conversation that you're trying to have with a colleague 
depending on your human container and how they choose to interpret that, uh, that's going to that's going to cloud things up and it's really going to only allow stoicism to work for some um, really well and not as well for others. That's a great point. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Mary Beth Stolp from the University of Northern Iowa. Her recent article is Girls Just Want to Have Fun Too, Complicating the Study of Femininity and Women's Leisure in Sociology Compass. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Sarah Patterson, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.